So, This Must Be Stronger Than That is our series that we are doing this November. And it comes from a book by John Tyson. And John Tyson wrote a book called Beautiful Resistance. And it's this book that speaks about the fact that we are living in a culture which is forming us in certain ways. And then we have this discipleship and apprenticeship to Jesus that we are trying to live. And actually, the culture is forming us in certain ways. And our apprenticeship to Jesus is meant to be forming us in certain ways. And there's actually a collision there. And in that collision, often our culture is winning. Our culture is winning, not, not our Christianity, not our discipleship, not our apprenticeship to Jesus. And so in this book, Beautiful Resistance, he speaks about how certain things upon, of our apprenticeship to Jesus must resist certain things of our culture. And it's a very good book. It's really well done. And he's a great author and a great pastor from New York City. And in that, he uses the word resist. And we have just taken that sermon, uh, sorry, we've taken that series and we've changed it to must be stronger than, because we just felt like it was just another way of saying the same thing, but a way that was maybe more, um, maybe more for us at this moment. So this must be stronger than that. And last week, if you were not here, if today's your first day or you missed last Sunday because you were running the marathon, you were crazy. Um, but if you were doing that, uh, you can listen to the podcast and you can check it out and you can hear Alicia kick off the series in such a wonderful way last Sunday. She framed it up and it was awesome. Today, I am going to be talking about love must be stronger than hate. And so with that, uh, I would love to pray because if you're anything like me, um, a title like that kind of takes your breath out of your stomach a little bit. So um, let's pray together and then let's see what the scriptures have for us as we are together this morning, hearing from the, the teaching of Jesus. Lord, you are our good rabbi, our good teacher. Jesus, we come to you. We come to you in this moment, gathered together around you, Christ. We come to you to be taught. We come to listen. We, we come to sit at your feet and have you instruct us. You are our good teacher. You are the author and the perfecter of our faith. We ask for you to author and perfect a little more in us today. Holy Spirit, come and bring life to these words. Lord, these words that uh, have been prepared, would they be like that, that moment in Ezekiel where the bones took on flesh? Lord, would, would, would something take on from what has been prepared today by your Spirit? Would your Spirit grow things in us? Would your Spirit bring life to us? Would your Spirit bring something new to us, we pray today? In your name, amen. Amen. So let's start with some scriptures. It's always a good thing to do. So, let's go. 2 Chronicles 24, 21 to 22. Then the leaders plotted to kill Zechariah, and King Joash ordered that they stone him to death in the courtyard of the Lord's temple. That was how King Joash repaid Jehoiada for his loyalty, by killing his son. Zechariah's last words as he died were, May the Lord see what they are doing and avenge my death. Uh, welcome to church, everybody. That was, that's in your Bible. <laughs> Let's go on. Psalm 137, 7-9. Oh Lord, remember what the Edomites did on the day the armies of Babylon, by Babylon captured Jerusalem. Destroy it, they yelled. Level it to the ground. O Babylon, you will be destroyed. Happy is the one who pays you back for what you have done to us. Happy is the one who takes your babies and 
oh, we'll just carry on. Jeremiah, this is in your Bibles. Jeremiah 17, verse 18. Bring shame and dismay on all who persecute me. But don't let me experience shame and dismay. Bring a day of terror on them. Yes, bring double destruction upon them. 18 verse 23, Lord, you know all about their murderous plots against me. Don't forgive their crimes and blot out their sins. Let them die before you. Deal with them in your anger. Have you ever been in the staff room at work and someone has microwaved a curry from the night before? Or fish? I think, pull out Jeremiah 17 verse 18 next time that happens and just let them know about it. A day of terror upon them. Double destruction upon them. 20 verse 12. O Lord of heaven's armies, you test those who are righteous and you examine the deepest thoughts and secrets. Let me see your vengeance against them, for I have committed my cause to you. Now, our Bibles are pretty funny things, aren't they? Because those scriptures are all sitting in the text. They're sitting in our scriptures. And I don't know about you, but... There is a language sitting here of vengeance. Vengeance. Now, if our Bibles ended there, if that's where they stopped and there was no more story, we'd have a pretty solid scriptural platform to stand on with how we are to deal with our enemies. We'd actually have something here that is legitimate. It's in the Bible. And this is how we should treat other people. We should... Should we just remind ourselves of that again? We should bring a day of terror upon them. Yes, bring double destruction upon them. Let them die before. Like this is, this is the stuff that is being held in the scriptures. But what we must realize is that is actually just how the world was too. This is actually the modern world day, worldview of its day. Is this is how stuff got done. This is how things changed. And that kind of way. Our Bibles do not end there. Though sadly, sometimes in Christian narratives, it's almost like they do, but they don't. Our Bibles do not end there. The narrative continues. It sweeps forward. It moves on. And I'm going to take you to one more scripture. This is in Luke 23 verse 34. And this is what it says. Jesus, who at the time is being crucified, he says, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they are doing. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. This is an icon of that moment. Uh, an icon's just a form of art to help us sacredly see some truths of, the, of what God's doing and God's story. So this is an icon, and icons are very uh, richly put together to tell us a story. And uh, this Easter, I don't know about you, but this Easter, I just had an entirely different Easter. I've never had one like it. And on Good Friday, while the world was going through what it was going through, I could not shake that this chaotic scene of Jesus' death was still happening in our world today. The chaos, the dismay, the confusion, the violence, the noise, the activity, it was still going on in 2020. It wasn't happening just like that, but the same activity was still taking place. And this Easter, I could not escape just how crazy and chaotic the scene of Jesus dying is. And so when Jesus says, 
Lord, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. Well, who is he forgiving? What is he doing there in that moment? Who in that crowd is that statement aimed at? If I zoom in on this icon a little bit more for you, there's some people here in this crowd that I think this statement is being aimed at. My, the commentary work I read this week says that it would be pretty similar. He is forgiving two systems that are at play around him that day. Two systems. The first system is a group of people called the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were the system of the temple, and they were zealous. They were people of holiness. They were people of an elite, um, I don't know, an elite conservatism even. Even you could say. They were people of um, extreme morals. They were keeping the law, which was all good things to do, but they did it in such a way that was just totally wrong. And they were crushing and piling demands on the people of God in such unhealthy ways. They were part of the system that got Jesus to the cross. The other system that's at play are the soldiers, the Roman soldiers, the embodiment and the example of Rome being in charge, power and domination from somewhere else. And so when Jesus is forgiving the systems around him that day, he is pointing to these two piles of people, the Roman emperor and the Pharisees, the Roman empire and the Pharisees, and he's saying, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. Jesus it's always good to remind ourselves of who he is and what he is doing. I'll just zoom in on him there for a moment more. I've been away for two weeks. I just want to remind you of something that's so important to remember. Jesus is, in our creed, fully God. When we look at Jesus, we see what God is like. We see how, we see how God would behave. We see what God's agenda is. Jesus is God, fully human. It's a bizarre mystery but a beautiful mystery nonetheless. He is fully God, fully man. And in this moment, we see crystal clear what love looks like. We see what love looks like, both in declaration and word. He says, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. He's praying for them. He's interceding for them. He is uttering for them. And in action, and he is actually he is on the cross. He has gone there. He is doing this. It is happening. Today, despite the precedent of the Old Testament giving us this, these prayers and words and moments of vengeance being legitimate, Jesus prays that God would forgive his persecutors. And today I want to remind us that the one we follow, this Jesus of Nazareth the, Nazareth, the one who is on the cross, this God who is human, we follow the one who showed us this way of love, a whole new way to be in the world. And this placement of love in the midst of hate is the way of Christ. Now, we keep saying the way of Christ around here a lot. You'll hear it a lot. The way of Christ, the way of Christ. Jesus said, I am the truth. Most of us have signed up for that. Most of us have gone, yep, get it. Some of us are still figuring that out. Most of us get it. Jesus said, I am the life. Yep, life. I'd like a better life. I'm signing up for that. Thank you, Jesus. But he also said, I am the way. And it is a way lived. It's literally how our lives are lived. That's a way of being in the world. And Jesus said, I am the way, and my way is this way, the way of the kingdom of God. And so this placement of love in the midst of hate is the way of Christ. And today, it is meant to be one of the greatest witnesses we too have. It is meant to be one of the greatest witnesses. But I say meant to be, and I would like to point out that, let's be honest, we've often, uh, often stuffed that one up, haven't we? 
And often people are quick to point it out. I don't know if you've ever had that personal moment when someone says to you, yeah, you're being awfully judgy for a Christian. <laughs> you know, I didn't know you, I didn't think you were meant to talk like that. You're a Christian. You know, people are really good at telling us the way we're meant to be behaving. But I think there's also an, a global picture that our, where our witness, the integrity of our witness has been stained. You know, maybe it's when American fundamentalist evangelicals get their guns out in one hand and they hold a sign up in the other saying, God bless America. Or maybe it's when the Northern Irish Catholics and Protestants decide that the way to sort out their differences is to put another bomb in a garbage can on the street. Or maybe it's when the Dutch reformed of South Africa decided that they would enforce the apartheid regime of South Africa with their black brothers and sisters. Or maybe here in our own history of Aotearoa, maybe it's when the Christian colonizers went awry on the agreement that they made with Tangata Whenua in Titiriti or Waitangi. Maybe this is the same story playing out here. Or what about this week? I mean, Guy Fawkes, who cares? This was November 5th this week. November 5th is a very important day in Aotearoa because it's the moment of Parihaka, 1881, when that same Christian colonizing army marched into a place of peaceful, passive resistance, peaceful, just passive life, and completely wiped it out in a way that should never have happened. This is what happens when the vengeance narrative continues to live. This is what happens when power looks like it did around the bottom of the cross rather than the one who was on the cross. Go back further into the story of the Crusades across Europe. And they're not exactly the finest moment of the church, are they? History is littered with these moments of our integrity to this witness being marked with a big black mark and a big F for fail. They were and are wrong. They are wrong behaviors. They are not the ways of love. They are the way of the vengeance mentality and power still being lived. So let's talk about how we can change that story a little bit today. How can we be the people of a witness of love? A one that doesn't live the narrative of vengeance, but changes the story to this love of God on a cross around the superpowers of its day, doing something different. Well, I just want to help you get your bearings for a moment. It's always important to talk about how life really is. And so let's start by talking about some problems of our lives lived today. Now, these are not all of them. It's a very long list. I have a very long list of problems. Uh, but today, this is the three problems I think that we all share in the world that we're living in. Problem number one, polarization. We are living in incredibly polarized and tribal times. I think if you've been watching the election in America this year, you would have heard the same commentators saying, uh, the commentary saying this. This is no longer the United States of America. It is the divided states of America. That division is into two piles, polar opposites, and the hence polarization. Polarization. These are, these are polarized times we find ourselves in. But, but, but how did we get here to that? Like what is polarization and how does it work? How have we found ourselves in this? Last week, Alicia pulled out some stuff from the Barna group and shared that with us all. Um, today, I want to take something from the Barna's uh, work in 2018 called Digital Trends. They did this great work around the way that the world was working and how it shaped up. And one of the things that they did was they had this paradigm here about how it is we've gotten to this place of tribalism and polarization. And I've just adapted this a little bit, but this is essentially their, their material. I've just tweaked a little bit today. So firstly, let's go back to the modern 
era, the modern age. In the modern age, truth was still authoritative, okay? Truth was still truth. It was on the table, and no one was kind of messing with it, and it was there, and it was what it was, and everyone agreed. Everyone agreed that that was truth. What happened in the postmodern era is that the postmoderns came along and said, well, what is truth? What actually is it? Can we slip it off the table for a little while? Oh, didn't get struck by lightning. Seems we can. You know, like they messed with that by, with, the, with, the, with the core question. Well, what actually is it? It's like the artwork movement where it was like, what is art? You know, so people would put toilets into, into um, art galleries for a while and say that that was art. Because what is art? It was the same moment. What is truth? And what happened is the progress from that is that because the truth authority got shifted, we ended up with this new moment, which is, well, my truth is truth. My truth is truth. I, I don't know if you use that phrase. Well, this is my truth. Like, like that's the phrase that I hear, I hear quite often. My truth, what, my perspective, my opinion, the way I see this, my lived reality, my experience, my story, my truth. But what's happened is, is because we aren't agreeing on the authority of truth any longer, What's happened is because everyone has their own truth and they're the occupiers of their own truth and they're the keepers of their own truth, if I don't agree with your truth, what happens is usually people say, well, then you're a hater. You're a hater. And we've lost the ability to dialogue. We've lost the ability to debate. We've lost the ability to have anything that's actually getting stretched. And instead, it's gotten personal. And that's what's happening all over the globe at the moment. What's happening is all these different ways of seeing things are being taken on board personally and they've been placed into these piles too close to home, and no one can actually let go. And it's too emotional, and it's too um, lived in. <laughs> and so what's happened is, is because of that, we then move on to tribalism. Tribalism are the various people who agree on the same self-truth. So we get together and all agree on the fact that we have the same truth. Yeah, yeah, we all believe that too, don't we? Yeah, 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 yeah. Meanwhile, there's that one really quiet person who's like, I don't know if I do. <laughs> I mean, I've been, I'm, I'm in those moments sometimes within church when people will say, we all believe this thing. And I'm like, I don't think I, do we all have to be batting on the same team to believe in that thing that you, you know, like, like it happens in church, happens in politics, happens in education systems, happens at work, happens in families. It's happening all over the place. We get together on our shared sense of, we agree on the same self-truth. What then happens is it leads to this polarization where the tribes have set up camps opposite each other. And then we end up in this moment of hatred. This moment like what we're seeing on the news in America at the moment of just so much violence and, and um, protesting. Because this is played out. This is playing out. So we live in these polarizing times. Just imagine just for a moment before I move on to number two and three. Imagine that icon I showed you before of Jesus on the cross. And in part of that mess, in part of all of that disturbance, just plonk polarization down in the corner as part of the scene, okay? Just put it there. Just imagine it there. When Jesus says, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Polarization, tribalism, it's sitting there in the scene. Part two. Problem number two. I think we have this sermon that's been preached many times, which is, you know, like, we're meant to be people of love, but we overuse the word love. Like we say, I love a cheeseburger. You know, have you heard that one? Like everyone, everyone who's been in church has heard someone pull out a sermon about that. Love is so much more than what we say about how much we love our food. Um, what I also think, and I'm observing, is I think we're doing with the same with the word hate. 
I think just like we've cheapened and made shallow the word love, we're also doing the same thing with the word hate. I say I hate things all the time, and I don't actually hate them. It might be a mild inconvenience, but I don't hate it. Like, it might be a slight annoyance, but I, I don't hate it. Okay, I, I was borderlining on using hate last night when the fireworks were still going off at like 11.30 and my toddler's trying to sleep and all that sort of stuff. I nearly wanted to say I hate those people, but I held back because I've been prepping the sermon all week and I knew it was important not to. We say that we hate things that we actually don't. But actually what we're doing as we do that is just like love, we are cheapening and we are, we're, we're changing the lens, to use Shelley's thing from earlier. We're changing the lens. We're putting a different set of glasses in to view that with. And what we're realizing is that hate is perhaps too strong a word to be using in such a casual way. And our shallow use of this word is diluting it down. And it's diluting it down. And we've lost the urgency to act on the emotional and societal warning that it was always meant to be. It's not wrong to have a moment of hate as an emotion because it's an alarm bell saying something. But because we've cheapened it so much, we've actually lost the ability to even know when that alarm bell is ringing out in our lives. Which brings me to problem number three, which is our current cultural onslaught. And what I mean by culture is how we're doing life at the moment. So how we do our lives in our city, in this moment, in this city, this is our culture. I know there's a lot of things that culture is. I know there's a lot of ways of talking about culture. That's just how I'm using it in this statement today. I'm meaning how we go about our life, how our world works is our culture today. Now, to comment further on point one on polarization and point two on this shallowness, I want to just raise the fact that we are living in this moment where our culture is then just adding to that by contributing to that in very similar ways. And, and, and as such, we just sort of end up with this white noise, this white noise of media, this white noise of activity. And it's getting so hard to ever sense like we're pricking out of that into something of urgency. I don't know about you, but I'm shocked at how unshocked I'm becoming as I read the news now. I'm shocked that I'm reading yet another news report about another moment in politics or the coronavirus or what's going on in the world or, or poverty, and there's nothing in me reacting anymore. What's going on? And I think it's because of all of the stuff we're talking about. There's, we're actually losing what it is to be people with a heartbeat in this world. Thank you, Chris. The nine o'clock didn't do that. Nine o'clock on the podcast, not happening. That's what's going on, and it's making my blood boil a little bit at how unjust I'm, so many things I'm seeing that are just unjust and wrong, and yet it's kind of just becoming like, well, we'll see what happens tomorrow. And here's what's happened. The Kardashians is finished, all right? Sorry about that. But actually, if you watch the news, I think it's just become the new Kardashians. It's just become yet another show that we watch, almost like entertainment, to be like, well, I wonder what the crazy thing is that they're going to do tomorrow. And it's all become white noise. And we're losing our sensitivity to what's going on in the world today. And as a result, I think we're losing our, our way in how to love well. And I think we're losing our way and not realizing when we are hating. And I think we're kidding ourselves quite often. Now, the early church was not... So that's my rant over. Rant done. The early church was not far from the same kind of world. It looked different, yes, and it had different forms, yes, but, but it wasn't that far off, what I've just spoken about. 
It actually felt very similar to being a person in the early church. You were, you were torn between all sorts of various pressures. Pressure has never, been, uh, has never gone away. It was positioned firmly in a place of persecution. It was being persecuted by the Roman Empire on one side, and it was being persecuted by the, red, the temple system on the other. The very people that were meant to be helping were, were not helping at all. And they chose to, and I mean they chose. Chose is a very important word in today's talk. They chose to be people who ended the story of vengeance and started a new story. They chose to be the people who wrote a different story for the people of God. They chose, they chose to live out something different. Preston Sprinkle, who wrote the uh, provocative book, Fight, uh, A Christian Case for Nonviolence, he wrote in, um, in his blog, which is recently actually, a stunning little excerpt. Jesus' command to love your enemies was the most popular verse in the early church. It was quoted in 26 places by 10 different writers in the first 300 years of Christianity, which makes it the most celebrated command among the first Christians. Matthew 5.44 was the so-called John 3.16 of the early church. And enemy love was the hallmark of the Christian faith. Our religion, sorry, other religions taught that people should love their neighbors. They even taught forgiveness for those who wronged them. But actually loving your enemy? Only Jesus and his followers took love this far. Because this is how far the love of God extends to us. While we were God's enemies, Christ loved us. Christians no longer distinguish between neighbors and enemies. Through the death of Jesus... We are swept up into God's love for all people, even enemies like us. The one who loves his enemies can no longer have any enemies. He is left only with neighbors. I love that. The one who loves his enemies can no longer have any enemies. He is left only with neighbors. Now, when the early Christians were being martyred, when they were being fed to the, the lions in Rome, or when they were being, putting, being put on stakes and burned, they forgave those who took their lives. Rather than defending themselves or seeking to save their own lives, they simply turned the other cheek and they, they died with joy. We see that even in Acts when we see the first martyrs starting to appear. They seem to be able to see something that we can't see. They actually loved the Roman Empire to its knees. And all of this is because of their concept of love. It was not a shallow love. I don't think you go to the lions for a shallow version of love. I don't think you go to the stake for a shallow version of love. I just don't think you could. They saw something we haven't seen. What was it? Well, it was literally their definition of love. It was redefined by Christ. It had been given a whole new set of metrics to be measured by. It was a whole new word in a way. Which brings me to the word agape. Has anyone heard of the word agape before? Yeah, I heard of agape when I was a teenager. Because our church did shared potluck meals once a month. And they called them agape meals. And there was this one lady, Mrs. Cox. She used to bring... She won't listen to this. I hope. She used to bring this fish pie that was so bad. Which just means for me the word agape has kind of been scarred. I'm doing a lot of healing. It's quite a triggering moment for me. 
But agape, agape is often a misunderstood form of love. Agape is the term that Christians use to redefine love. This is literally, they took the word love and this is one of the ideas they loaded into it. And I'm inviting you to do the same thing today. Take the word love, dump it on the table there and let's load this word up with this idea. It carries the idea of being others-centered. It carries the idea of being sacrificial. It carries the idea of a love that is costly. It has to part with something, but it will do it anyway. Jesus had a unique perspective on what this looked like, and in his great sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, he painted various portraits of how these things could actually be done. So rather than just that idea sitting there, let's listen to Jesus, because Jesus actually says, well, if you want to love like that, here's how it looks. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. And if someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. And if someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you. And if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, then what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those who, with whom you re expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to the sinners expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies. Do good to them and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great. You will be children of the Most High because He is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. See, agape becomes this entirely new way of being in the world. We actually have to choose to become different people. Agape actually says to us, if we actually get this, then we have, to, we have to be different this afternoon. We have to be different tomorrow. We have to be different on Tuesday. We have to be different because agape calls us to a different way of interacting with the people around us. It calls us to, rather than being warriors and constructors of walls to keep people behind or chasms to keep people apart, it calls us to become peacemakers. Making peace is very different to just keeping peace, okay? But we're called to be makers of peace. We're called to be reconcilers, people who bring things back together after they've been parted and broken. And we become bridge builders. We create spaces in which people can cross that they didn't think they could cross. Now, side note, I, I don't want to be misinterpreted here. So there is a little bit of nuance that I just want to tap into as we start to land. Firstly, agape love does not mean that you just become a doormat. Agape love does not mean you just become a doormat, okay? It's not what it means. It does not mean that we let personal sin or a broken person around us or a broken system around us just treat us like we don't exist. That is not agape love. Oh, but I'm serving them. No, you're not. You're not serving them. It means that we don't keep coming home to an abusive person. It means we don't submit to a toxic manipulation or a boss or a colleague or a family member who's just treating us in ways we shouldn't be treated. Because as C.S. Lewis points out, forgiveness does not mean excusing. Just think about that for a second. Often our idea of forgiveness is, well, I'll just sweep it under the rug and pretend it didn't happen. That's not forgiveness. C.S. Lewis says, no, no, no. To forgive, you must remember. To forgive, you must acknowledge. If you haven't done those things, you haven't forgiven. 
He says, forgiveness does not mean excusing. And I think when it comes to agape love, agape love is the same. We must acknowledge. We must be able to say, this is broken. This is wrong. This is unjust. This should be different. Agape love should call those things out. It does not stay silent. Because Christ himself did that same thing after all. But Christ was not a doormat. What Christ was, was compassion. He was compassion. And what compassion is, is is an entirely different way of being within what's going on. Yes, the situation may be the same. The Roman Empire is still happening. But Christ entered into it, submitted himself to it, participated in what was going on. That is mind-boggling. Christ himself was compassion. So back to that opening image of the talk today. Back to that icon I showed you. All that mess and craziness and chaos going on around the bottom. I want you to acknowledge that while in one corner there might be, uh, there might be this polar and tribalistic nature to our life. And some there might be this shallow and just sort of white noise like, it's like life doesn't really even matter. And over here there's this stuff where it's just really messy and broken. In amongst all of that. Christ on a cross, grounded in reality, mercy embodied, compassion taken on skin and nailed, forgiving. He says, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. This is the cruciform God. Cruciform just means the shape of the cross, the form of the cross. And this is our God, people. This is who he is. He is the cruciformed God. The God of the love of a father and the arms outstretched to the hurting world. And we, we are called as the people continuing that story to be the cruciformed people. The story of vengeance that I started with is not our story. Put it down. Stop playing a part in it. Don't write more scripts for it. Become a person who is cruciformed in this world. A person who is living in worship and love and adoration for our Father and his arms outstretched in the broken places of our world and our city and the places that have been shadowed up for far too long. So how do we live a life where love is stronger than hate? How do we actually do this? Well, today, just a couple of thoughts to land. I could have taken this in so many places, but this is where we went today. Number one, we need to redefine love. We need to stop using it as a cheap word. We need to learn some new meanings. And the way we learn new meanings is not just by learning and taking on another sermon or another talk from Dan or Alicia or next week, Ella. We don't just learn that way. We learn by practicing a way. I have learned more about love by choosing to marry my wife 12 years ago than I ever could have by reading 12,000 books. By being in the space of marriage, I have learned more about sacrificial love. I was just talking to someone today after the nine o'clock who has completely changed their, um, their job to an entirely new job. And he looked me in the eye and he said, it's because I started coming to gratis. He started going, he's gone into the social sector and he's gone there because he placed himself in this space where he had to learn how to love some other people that weren't like him. A thousand books wouldn't have done that. But being in this place did it. We have to place ourselves in these spaces to learn how to love. 
There are spaces all around us. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says about marriage, he says, it's not your marriage that's to sustain your love, it's your love that is to, no, sorry, it's not your love that is to sustain your marriage, it's your marriage that is to sustain your love. Don't get it around the wrong way. In other words, this space is meant to help you become a greater lover. And it's the same with so many things in our world. We're actually invited into spaces to learn how to become better lovers. We, I have a friend, a great friend, one of my best friends, and he is a person that I am incredibly vulnerable with, incredibly authentic with. I can argue with him. I can debate with him. I can disagree with him. And we still decide to be friends at the end of it. And in that space, I have learned that it's okay. Because in that space, it's, it's what it's for. It's a space of integrity. And we can, as two friends, figure things out. Do you have a space like that? I would encourage you to find one if you don't have one. And lastly, I have this rule I have this rule because, because like you, I don't get this right. And I have relationships that go wrong. And I have people that I've fallen out with just like you do. And I have this question that I, I think I heard it in a sermon years and years ago. And the question was this. If you fall out with someone, how do you want to walk past them on the street a year later? And I think it's a terrific question to hold and say, is that a question I'm going to let guide the way I finish relationships? Is that a question that I could use so that when things do fall out, I do the best to make peace. I do the best to reconcile. I do the best to go forward. Or when someone comes at me with something that I've done wrong, do I just run away? Or do I actually confront it with integrity and say, all right, time to learn. I want to be able to walk past you next week. Like literally, like some of you have confronted me about things because I've said them in a sermon or whatever. And literally, that's what goes through my mind. I want to be able to see you at church next week. So I'm going to sort this out with you right now. And I ask the same of you today too. Put yourself into spaces to learn that. Number two, realize that it starts in God and it ends in you. But just as it does that, so it starts in you and it's to end in others. You know, the scriptures do not separate our life with God and our life with others. It doesn't do it. The scriptures do not go, okay, some of you are going to love worship and you're going to be worshipholics over here and you're going to love it every time there's a song. And some of you are going to be social justice warriors and you're going to change the world and you're going to serve the poor and there's going to be a chasm in between and you cannot cross. Like That's not what the scriptures are doing. The scriptures call us, they beckon us, they say, no, 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 your love of God, your worship of God, your adoration to God, your life lived to God and your service to the poor, your life lived with others, your relationships with people, they are the same thing. They are together, they are tied, they are connected. Do not separate them. And so when we're called to be people who stop the one story of vengeance and start the story of love, we're to remind ourselves every day, my love of others is my love of God. As Christ said, Christ said the way you treated me, when you treated those people, is how you treated me. We must remind ourselves of that. I was going to use a C.S. Lewis quote, but I've already used one, so I won't do that. I'll leave that back there. Lastly, we're called to live the cruciform bridge. And so I call you all today. Live your next step of being a person of agape as courageously as you can. Take that next step. I don't know what it is for you. I don't know what it needs to be. I don't know what you need to address. I don't know what, um, what areas of hatred or bitterness or something that's unresolved might be sitting in your life. But I know this. The way of agape would call you to start to take a few steps in that. Go see someone who can help. Go see a counselor. Seek some pastoral care. Ask for prayer. Confess it to a friend. Find a network who can help you. 
Start taking a step that calls you to accountability to living the way of agape so that you may be the cruciform person and that you may walk into the things that God has for you. Do all that you can to live in the love of God above all.